Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. How's it going? I'm okay, India. How are you today? I'm okay too. I think I'm better than I was last week. <laughs> last week was a bit hard, wasn't it? It was. Um, really excited at recording this episode. Kind of not, I don't want to say last minute, but you know. You know, this or, is go ahead. No, I was just saying quicker than usual. <laughs> yes, this is one of our quick turnaround episodes because. Uh, on the 18th, and we're recording this on the 21st, on the 18th, as I'm sure everybody knows by now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the Supreme Court passed away. So we wanted to do a small episode talking about how great she was and how it fits into our show topic. Yeah, Yeah, um, I think it's really special episode so we can highlight some of the ways she supported the queer community on multiple levels um because the queer community is made up of so many different kinds of people and i think uh you know we can't talk about everything that uh justice ginsburg did because we're trying to keep our show to a reasonable time and there are going to be a lot of talk pieces and podcast episodes about her so we did want to limit the conversation to just LGBTQ issues uh, and some of the topics that are related to this show. Yeah, so, you know, I think where there's cases that are specifically involved in the South in some way, I wanna highlight um, LGBTQ rights apply nationwide and there's other issues related to international community. So that's just our, I guess this is our contribution to the current conversation. So. I did want to start out with what the basics are of the, what is the Supreme Court. Um, if you are someone like me who grew up with, you know, half education in Mexico, half education in the States, or you're not an American and weren't educated on that U.S. government, I think it would be really um, helpful um, to either refresh reminder or new information to learn um, about it. And Aubrey, you are probably the best person I could be talking about. <laughs> talking well, about with this kinds of conversation. It's so good. So yes, Aubrey. I love the Supreme Court. And, you know, I first learned about the Supreme Court in high school. And in fact, it's what I went to college to study. I studied political science. And my focus was on public law and constitutional law and you know, as I said before, I briefly went to law school, but basically I have a deep love of the Supreme Court. I think it's very important to our constitutional system of government. You know, we have those three branches, Congress that makes the laws, the president that is supposed to execute them. And then the Supreme Court is supposed to define what the constitution means. 
And federal and state laws are not supposed to violate the US Constitution. Uh, as the highest court in the land, it is the court of last resort for those people looking for justice. And from a historical standpoint, for oppressed groups in society, especially women, people who are racial or ethnic minorities, the LGBTQ community, we've actually had a greater level of success at achieving equality in the courts when Congress and the president and state governments won't act. So what do you think are important cases for us to highlight or think about, um, especially when it comes to the topics that we're going to cover concerning RBG? Well, because we are limited in time, I think we want to focus mainly on cases that are about women's rights, uh, same-sex, uh, uh, gender, what we call gender parity or gender equality. And we want to focus on some issues about LGBTQ people. And we want to highlight what, how it relates to the South and how Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg voted in them. And just as a preview, she voted in every case <laughs> to support queer rights. So never once did she dissent. So she was always on the side of voting for us. Yeah, and um, I don't know about you, but when I first learned about RBG, I didn't realize how much of an impact she really made for not only our generation, but also for women. And I, you know, when I saw the documentary and, and read about it, I also saw um, that other movie, it was more Hollywood style, uh, The Basis of Sex, you know, they didn't really touch on too much on LGBTQ um, issues. It was more about the rights for women, but I don't think they, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if RBG realized how much that particular law was going to affect the LGBTQ community and to what extent. Um, oh, absolutely. In fact, a lot of our, you know, legal opinions and our laws that, that protect the queer community are just extensions of gender equality laws for women. So a lot of it's connected. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that's really beautiful. And I was really excited to learn more about these different um, important cases that she laid a hand in. Um, we just wanna start maybe going kind of in a chronological order by year. Would that be easiest or? Yes, I think that would be helpful um, okay. for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And if I get too nerdy or too Supreme Court in the weeds, let me know because I get really jazzed about this. I swear, I wasn't sure what I was going to do in college when I was back in high school until yeah. I started learning about the Supreme Court and the law. And then I found my passion for my, my education passion. So so before we talk about the Supreme Court cases, India, do you want to give us a quick biography about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yeah, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was born uh, Joan Ruth Bader, uh, March 15th, 1933, to unfortunately September 18th, 2020. Uh, she was an American jurist who served as an associate justice to the Supreme Court of the U.S. from 1993 until her death uh, in 2000. 
till 2020. Um, she was nominated by Bill Clinton and um, she has yet to be succeeded by someone else. That's TBD and that's a hot topic right now. So she died from complications from pancreatic cancer and she was married to Martin Ginsburg, which quote, I believe she said the only man who had a brain. <laughs> <laughs> RBG uh, was famously known for her challenging workout. She was also the second female Supreme Court justice appointed person on the Supreme Court. Wow, I butchered that sentence. <laughs> she was the second female appointed to the Supreme Court. She wrote 126 dissenting opinions written by her um, between 1993 and April of 2020. That's a lot. That's a lot. She actually had a really long tenure on the court. So uh, 27 years, which is a good amount of time. Yeah, to do a lot. So tell me about some of the cases. All right. So we do want to talk about just the cases related to LGBTQ rights, I think, uh, just for time. And I want to limit it to the cases that she actually heard when she was on the bench. There were a few that were before her, but I want to start with 1993 and move on. Cool. Uh, One of the significant cases was a 1996 case called Romer v. Evans. And Romer v. Evans was a case out of Colorado. And what's interesting about that is that in Colorado, they had passed a state amendment that said LGBTQ people could not sue for same-sex protections. And the Supreme Court actually said, you cannot do that. So this case didn't grant uh, LGBTQ people any kind of same-sex rights, but it said that the state cannot stop us from using the courts. So this is kind of a precursor to the later legislation. And again, That's a Colorado case, so not quite the South, but still very important. One Southern case that that gets a lot of attention is Lawrence v. Texas. Mm. And that was a 2003 case, and that's actually out of Houston, Texas, so very much a Southern case. And Lawrence v. Texas overturns a previous case, and the basic issue around Lawrence v. Texas is is it illegal to engage in same-sex sexual activities? So between... 2003? That seems so, like, antiquated. Yes, yes. But several states, including Texas and, like, most southern states, had laws on the books where if you engaged in sexual activity, such as sodomy, and it was mainly targeted at people of the same sex, you could actually get arrested and it was a and it, it was illegal in 2003 yeah or i guess prior to 2003 wow, yes in fact, this case came up in 1986 in a case called bowers v hardwick and that's a georgia case and in 1986 the supreme court said yeah no these laws are fine this is there's nothing wrong with a law making this type of sexual activity illegal And in 2003, they reversed decision and they said, it's private, it's two consenting adults. You can't tell them what to do in their own bedroom. 
wow, I don't even like, ugh, 2003. I guess what I find fascinating about RBG is like, it's in my generation. Like that wasn't even that long ago. Yes, yes, it wow. was. And, and so in this case, she actually voted on the side of Lawrence. She voted to overturn these laws and said, no, you have a right to privacy that your privacy in your bedroom is not the government's business if it's, you know, two consenting adults. And again, this doesn't protect like minors and it doesn't protect non-consensual sex, but yeah, this is very recent. And that didn't also, at the time, it wasn't legally uh, acceptable to be same-sex marriage yet because that didn't no, this happen is before, that. before, right? Uh, this is actually before that. and. and you know, the, the same-sex marriage issue that is very important to us now was actually very controversial in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. A lot of the gay community didn't want that to be the focus hmm. because there was a split within the gay community. A lot of activists felt, why are we focusing on marriage, which is such, on marriage, which is such a heteronormative, basic society, like, are we giving into the societal image of, oh, we need to get married. Whereas other LGBTQ activists said, we need to focus on things like AIDS research and employment protections and non-discrimination instead of focusing on this idea of marriage, which only benefits a few, whereas employment discrimination, that affects all of us because we all need jobs affect essentially. Yeah, but I did love how, um, I don't remember who told me this, or maybe I read it somewhere. Um, you can't fight something that you already believe in. And yes. when it comes to marriage equality, I think it was a huge win for our community because the heteronormative society uh, community, or I should say the heteronormative community couldn't fight us on love is love because they are loving other people and they believe in marriage so it was a really easy win in my opinion I mean I know it was hard but it was hard yes it, but it was an easy step in order to get to where we wanted to be um and that so, was the argument that basically went out is that let's focus on something that straight people already believe in and that and and you know I, we believe in all kinds of equality we want all the equality right but which things do you focus on first and so Lawrence v. Texas wasn't even about marriage. It was just about, hey, it's in our the privacy of our own bedroom. Why does the state care what we do? Seriously. That's okay. Texas. Okay. Um, okay. Whew. And we'll fast forward 10 years to 2013, the case of United States versus Windsor. And this one is only seven years ago, and it gets a lot more attention this case is about a 1996 ban by Congress on federal mar on marriage. Because in 1996, Congress passed something called the Defense of Marriage Act. And basically, Congress said, we're not going to recognize same-sex marriage for tax benefits and other benefits. There were about 3,000 federal benefits you get from being married. Wait, wait. So in 2004, they said it was okay for you to get married, but you don't get any benefits with it. No, no. In 2000, no, no. In, in 1996, they said, because states regulate marriage. And I think this is one of the things that's interesting. There's no federal way to get married unless you're in the military. Ah. 
Right. But most people aren't in the military. So states regulate marriage. Like when you go to get married, it's a state process. It's a state license. But there's a federal recognition to it. Being married to file your, being able to file your taxes jointly. If you are entitled to your spouse's social security benefits, if you can, if your spouse is on a ventilator or in a comatose state, be having the power of attorney to essentially pull the plug or not, and that sounds very crass, but uh, they did a study where there were about 3,000 benefits on the books at the federal level that you get for being married that you don't have if you're single. Wow, okay. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's small things, you know? It's small things and it's big things. And in 1996, Congress passed something called the Defense of Marriage Act, commonly known as DOMA, D-O-M-A. Yeah. And Congress said, we're not going to allow any of these, matter, these, these marriage benefits to be extended to same-sex couples. So prior to 2013, you could get married as a same-sex couple, but then there was all these other benefits that you could not have because you were a same-sex marriage? Yes, yes. If you were in a state like Hawaii or Texas, Massachusetts, that uh, no, that did allow the same. Oh, that did allow. <laughs> you would still have to figure out: Do I file my taxes singly? And so you still have to navigate this kind of two worlds. Wow. And in fact, during the oral arguments, Justice Ginsburg actually asked a particular question. Uh, and 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 one thing, one of her quotes is that she said the federal marriage ban impose two kinds of marriage, the full marriage, and then this sort of skim milk marriage with limited rights for same-sex couples. Oh, yeah. She was amazing. Yes, right? And, and so the 2013 decision, which again, Justice Ginsburg joined with the majority, it did not allow for same-sex marriage, but it did say that the federal government cannot discriminate against couples that are legally married in the states that allow it. No. Okay, so what happened next? Well, the 2013 case led to the 2015 case, the Obergefell v. Hodges case. Okay, and that was in the South? What's that? That was the South too? Well, actually, what we call Obergefell v. Hodges is actually four different cases that they consolidated. Uh, sometimes if there are a lot of court cases and they're all about the same issue, the Supreme Court will combine them. And so this is actually four different cases, but two of them were Southern cases, Kentucky and Tennessee. Both had cases where, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee did not allow same-sex marriage. And so Obergefell, half the cases were Southern cases. And this is where the Supreme Court actually said, you cannot discriminate against couples on the basis of sex. If there are two same-sex people and they want to get married, you can't stop them. And so this is 2015? That was only years ago. Yes, yes. So this whole idea about the fact that you can get married in every state is only as recent as 2015. And that's huge because if you look at before 2015, the states that let you do a same-sex marriage we're all in the North or in the West. Southern states, I don't think a single one, and I'm looking at maps, I don't think a single Southern state allowed for same-sex marriage 
before it was forced on them in 2015. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This this goes back to what I said in the beginning, how the courts have been there for minority rights in a way that the states and Congress aren't. This court said it applied all across the country. And Ginsburg was also the first Supreme Court justice to conduct a same-sex marriage, right? Yeah, yes. Actually, I think she conducted several of them. I know she did one in 2000 with some of her former legal clerks. And I don't know what state that was in, but I know she did conduct one. Wow. And I think she's conducted a couple. She conduct, I, I say she, I'm still using present tense because it takes me a while to really understand that she's she's not with us like in my mind she's still here and so if I keep using present present tense for it's because it hasn't sunk in yet she was a big part of my career (laughs) I, I like to think that maybe she physically isn't here anymore but her fight and what she believes in will remain strong Oh, absolutely. I I mean, I have so many friends that work for Planned Parenthood and ACLU as lawyers, and the fight lives on. I don't never think the fight is dead. There are so many young lawyers. I say young, I'm including myself because I refuse to believe I'm old. There's so many lawyers that are taking up her cause. We're in good hands for the future. So I I do want to talk about what's going on today, but um, I know that there's one more case that you want to highlight in 2020. Yes. So after the Obergefell v. Hodges case in 2015, the next significant LGBTQ case is actually 2018 with the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And this is a a case I still use in my class. It's where the religious baker in Colorado didn't want to do a same-sex wedding cake. Yeah. And there became that question of, can you force a bakery to do a wedding cake if they have a religious objection to it? And it gets real complicated real fast. (laughs) That gets real complicated because there are so many more issues involved in it that we're usually not having the right conversation around it, but Uh, And again, that case was very narrow. It only applied to the baker in this case. That didn't apply to anyone else in the country. It just applied to this one baker. Yeah. Where the Supreme Court ruled, not that he had to make a same-sex wedding cake. The Supreme Court ruled that he didn't get a fair trial. Hmm. And Justice Ginsburg actually dissented in that case. She wanted the Colorado Civil Rights Commission to win. And she felt that he should have been, that he, that he was not discriminated against and he should have been made to provide these same sex cakes, I believe. Wow. I mean, even when we lose, she's still on our side. Yes. And plus I think uh, that still happens today. Hmm. This is not a settled issue at all. And again, this is not my classroom, so I don't want to dive into it, but (laughs) <laughs> this is not, I mean, because this, I have a whole assignment on this question. I'd love and that. You, yeah. Maybe uh, we'll dive into it in a future okay. episode. <laughs> Take my class. <laughs> uh, and then the next one is, after that, is what happened this past summer in 2020. Uh, and this is where the Supreme Court said that you cannot discriminate against someone in employment 
because of being uh, LGBTQ. And there were a couple cases, there were three cases involved in there. And they were looking at something called the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits gender discrimination in employment. Right. And, and the Civil Rights Act says you can't fire someone because of their sex. And the Supreme Court said, well, that includes sexual orientation and it includes being transgender. Which is massive. And I can't believe we are talking about this in today's, you know, 2020. I mean, that just like, whew. I mean, absolutely, right? And it's amazing because almost no Southern state has an equal, has a, has a law on the books entitling LGBTQ people to employment protections. In Texas, before this 2020 case, you could get fired for being gay. In Kentucky, in Tennessee, in North Carolina, in Alabama, if a boss looked at you and said, oh, you're gay, you're fired, there was no legal protection for you until this case. So it's three cases. And for our Southern Queries purposes, I want to talk about the Bostock v. Clayton County specific case, because this was actually a case about Georgia where a social worker in Georgia was fired because his boss found out that he worked on, that he played on a gay softball league. And so he was actually fired and the boss tried to make up some kind of trumped up charges about it. And this went all the way to the federal government and that employee actually won. Wow. So one of the cases was Georgia related. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I think- Go ahead. It, all of us in today's world. I mean, I was employed earlier this year and I could have been fired for being LGBTQ. And at the time I was teaching a lot of classes on how and talks and giving free talks on why you should put your pronouns on your LinkedIn page and on your email signature. And a lot of my coworkers that were LGBTQ said that they would never do that in a thousand years. And I said, but why? And they're like, because I'm afraid I'm going to get fired or discriminated against. No, I get that. And, you know, I work at a job where I do have workplace protections, even before the 2020 ruling. My job is actually very welcoming, very affirming. And it's in our policies that I cannot be fired for being transgender or for being queer. And I give that training on how to be an LGBTQ ally and how to create those safe spaces. Yeah. And up until 2020, I still didn't put my pronouns in my signature because there's that fear that what if by putting my pronouns in, I'm saying I'm trans and then they come up with an excuse to fire me. And again, my job would never do that. But I do get that real fear. It's strange that something that could help bring about acceptance can also have this question of if we're in the South, are we signaling that we should be fired by being an ally or be showing your pronouns? Well, and my response to some of my previous coworkers was, well, if my pronouns are on my LinkedIn page and they don't want to hire me because I'm gay, I probably don't want to work there. But I understand and I could see also the other stance of, oh no, I might not ever get a job because my pronouns are on there and I'm, I'm in a state where I don't have those protections. So that was huge. And there's um, still that question of how much do you show of yourself versus 
you know, the fear of getting fired. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, right? I mean, because it's so easy to fire someone and make up an excuse when really, you know, you're firing someone because they're gay or they're bisexual or because they're poly or they're pan, but you make up an excuse. And without these workplace protections, these things are hard to prove. So I think it's really important to also point out that that is why um, there's like a bigger issue for me when it comes to RBG's death. If an entire democracy relies on one, one 87 year old woman not dying, then really I think our democracy is extremely broken. Oh, absolutely. Um, Especially right now in 2020, I feel like the Supreme Court justice disagrees so much and on what the constitution actually means and defining a democracy has become yet another partisan game, which has become really intense in this year. I mean, whether we're talking about COVID-19, going back to school safely, how to keep others uh, safe, race. I mean, everything's so politically charged. but I, I really, thank you, Aubrey. I really wanted to kind of highlight those different cases because I know that there's a lot right now um, at stake and a lot of those cases could be um, completely overturned. Um, something that I didn't really- fear, right? Well, no, that's- yeah. I mean, well, hey, I've got the student loan debt to prove that I learned those cases. So I might as well talk about them. <laughs> yeah. But um, today I was listening to um, NPR and they had the national, national, the national political correspondent, Mara Lyson on there. And she was talking about the potential of swing votes and I really got into the kind of deep dived a little bit on the balance that there are two different risks in the Senate majority before the election. Um, So there's just a lot at stake in terms of cementing the conservative majority on the court has been its like 40 year project. It's their goal to have the majority on there be Republican. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, and this is where, you know, I'm fairly liberal. I have no problem admitting that. One thing I always give Republicans and conservatives credit for is that they are very good at long-term thinking. Yeah, they don't think of they don't care just about the 2020 election. They care about 2024, 2026 and 22 with the House and the Senate 2028. They have long term strategies and Democrats tend to go election to election. And I think that does hurt the Democratic Party. I feel like um, the Democratic Party sometimes does the we use it in corporate terms, but uh, they are very reactionary instead of like planning in advance. I, I'm agreeing with you. I, I think yeah. they they just, they react instead of like strategically think about how to make this a solid thing in the future, which is maybe partly why we're in the dilemma that we're in. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... But on the flip side, this this could also energize the Democrats. Um, you know, the rallying uh, for the young women who idolize Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg. Um, it could also energize young suburban female voters because of the ACA and Obamacare. Um, Democrats have already broken records with fundraising um, since uh, she died. So 
I mean, I really think this will have a major impact on American life if there is a six to three majority. Um, and in the short term, the fear is that they can overturn all of these different things, even um, such things like Roe versus Wade. And yes. put the court at many odds <laughs> <laughs> on so many different issues. I mean, climate change, school prayer, gun control, structure of the government, voting rights. You know, I, I fear about, will I be able to marry Allison next year legally? Yeah, no. Well, I know that there was a brief moment, and this goes back a few years, where a California law in legalized same-sex marriage, and then it was invalidated, and then it was legal again. During this period of uncertainty, there were a lot of LGBTQ couples that rushed to get married. Because one thing about the law is that once you're married, retroactively, they really can't go back and say you're not married anymore. Yeah. So one thing we might see, if there's this fear that the court may come back and say, no, you can't marry someone of the same sex, you might see a rush of gay couples saying, we're going to get married now so that it's on the books. So that even if they come back and say it's not, that future couples can't get married, they can't go back and say the marriage you have that is legal now is no longer legal. So what you're saying is go get married as soon as possible. <laughs> and that's the big fear with the court being so divided as it is on these major issues. And I don't want to scare anybody, but there's also another liberal justice that no one ever talks about called Stephen Breyer. And Stephen Breyer, so there's only nine of them. And Stephen Breyer is pretty much just as liberal as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but he leads a quieter life, so he doesn't get the notoriety and the iconic status. But Breyer is a big defender of LGBTQ rights, and he's 82. The next, old, like the oldest judge on the court is also a liberal. Yeah. And the conservative judges on the court, with the, accepted, the acceptance of Alito, who is set, uh, Samuel Alito is 70. And Clarence Thomas is 72, but the oldest judge is a liberal. And the new people that Trump appointed are relatively young in their 50s. So Democrats need a long-term strategy because, and I never wish death on anybody, but statistically speaking, the next justice to leave is also going to be liberal. So when it comes to me as a person, living in this country, what can I do about stuff like that? Like that seems very like, oh no, this is terrible. What can I do? Vote? Is this what it comes down to? Is voting for someone who can appoint younger, more like-minded? That, that's why the president, yeah, that's part of why the presidential election is so important because the president appoints the judges and justices and the Senate confirms them. So the president gets to pick the person and it's up to the Senate to say yes or no. That's why picking a president is so important, but it's also why you need to vote in your local Senate elections. So Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate majority leader who has promised to push through anybody Trump appoints and who didn't wanna push through Obama's appointee, he's up for reelection this year. 
and there's a sin and there's a candidate named Amy McGrath who's a Democrat and she's running against him in Kentucky. She needs your donations, she needs your support, she needs your vote if you're in Kentucky. And so really it's gonna be important who you vote for in the US Senate race as well. Now, Lindsey Graham is up for reelection and he's going against a pretty good progressive. Here in Texas, Senator John Cornyn is up for reelection and he's gonna probably push through anybody Trump wants and MJ Hagar's running against him and she could use your support. So I always tell people don't, I mean, yes, the presidency is important but don't give presidential candidates your money Give them to your local elections. Give them to your Senate candidates, your House candidates, and down ballot races. I also think it's extremely important to get informed. Um, there's yes. so many great resources online, free, I might add. I've mentioned these, this to you before, but the, the League of Women Voters usually has an incredible online PDF that you can look through and it explains what different um, positions, like I didn't know that the railroad commissioner is something that we, the people pick. I also didn't know it had nothing to do with the railroad. No, um, it doesn't. Maybe. Oil and, mainly oil and natural gas regulation, yes. Right, but like, I didn't know this. And I took it upon myself to learn who we're voting for because people focus so much on the president, but they don't realize that at a local level, it ripple effects all the way up to the president and the Senate in the Supreme Court. And it's extremely important to understand who you're voting for at a local level, at a state level, at a national, like federal level. Um, yes. So I'll be sure to put some good links. I'm sure you have more, Aubrey, um, in the description box. But holy smokes, uh, let's vote because I also felt a little bit frustrated that, you know, as I said before, our whole democracy is like being held by this woman who died. I mean, that's a problem. She should have had a successor. There should have been either more women on the Supreme Court justice. As Ruth has said, uh, there's enough women on there when there's nine of them. <laughs> and hopefully we'll have a diverse set of women um, up there one day, but they won't get there unless we vote. Well, I mean, we've had 113 Supreme Court justices over the course of this country. We've had 113 over 200 plus years. Only four have been women. What? Three, three of those four have been appointed by Democrats. The first one, Sandra Day O'Connor, was appointed by a Republican, but then she actually became quite moderate. She was a swing voter. But out of 113, we've only had four. And those four have come only in the last four decades. Wow. But the thing that you have to remember is that we need young people in law schools and we need young people to become judges because the way to become a Supreme Court justice traditionally is to be a judge already at a lower federal level. And those judges are appointed as well. So we know that Democrats statistically vote, uh, Democratic presidents pick more women and minorities to be on the bench than Republicans do. Republican presidents are less likely to pick minorities to serve on benches, to serve, to serve on the federal courts. Democrats are more likely to pick minorities and women as far as increasing the numbers because you have to increase the numbers at the lower levels to increase the numbers, the number of qualified people on the Supreme Court. But it's a whole thing. It's And as to this idea that our democracy is kind of being held to this slim majority, that's 
the reality of the American political system. The Republicans in the Senate only hold a very small majority. There's 53 Republicans and 47 Democrats. So if Democrats want to control the Senate, they need four senators. And the House, if the Democrats want to, the House, the Democrats have a slim majority there. American politics really is based on these kind of shifts between different majorities and minorities. And for so many cases, actually, eight or nine of the justices actually agree on a lot of things, issues related to corporate law, financial law. It's these big civil rights, civil liberties issues where we see the differences show up a lot more than just your average corporate case about corporate law. Those don't get as much media attention and they're more likely to agree. Civil rights, civil liberties cases, that's where the disagreements are in the court. Uh, and the last thing I want to say about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and this is something that I think people forget, she was actually best friends with Justice Antonin Scalia. And Antonin Scalia was one of the most conservative justices on the court, and he died in 2016. He was one of the most conservative ones, and they were best friends for decades. They went to the opera together, they hung out all the time, they had dinner parties, they were best friends for decades. So it is possible to have a level of civility and friendship with people that you disagree with. Politics doesn't have to be so mean, but at the same time, these things do matter. So let's do some final thoughts. What are your final thoughts on why Ruth Bader Ginsburg was important to queer rights in the South? I mean, so many, but I think the, the biggest one is, you know, she was able to maintain the humor and youthful curiosity um, through all of her ever eager um, tasks that she took on. Um, she asked really good questions. And I think she had really high empathy levels for being a white uh, hetero woman. She was always on our side. And I think it's, we need more people like that. I agree with you, Aubrey. I think we need them to be up there. And my biggest takeaway from all of this is we got to be informed and vote. <laughs> <laughs> And if you have any inclination to do anything in the government or use your voice and power in order to improve the world that you live in, like, go do it. Let's get Absolutely. some more judges up there who are women and LGBTQ people because we can't make changes if we're not there. Yeah, absolutely. How about you? Uh, my final thought might be a little bit different because, you know, she was 87 years old. And the thing I love about her story is that, like you said, this wasn't, you know, being queer is not her life, was not her life. Being a racial minority was not her life. But she still fought for us in a way that I think younger LGBTQ people tend to discount the older generations, mm. baby boomers and Gen Xers. And she was 87 years old on the court, still fighting for us. Issues that she may have understood, maybe not understood, but 
don't have this assumption that just because someone is older doesn't mean they don't get it. And I was reading an interview where one of President Bush's daughters, I think Jenna Hager Bush, said that her grandmother, who we would know as Barbara Bush, who was 90 and a Republican, supported trans rights. And she was 90. And she actually supported trans rights. So I don't want people to think, and I don't want younger people to think that just because you're older doesn't mean that people don't give it, don't get it. Give people a chance. And you got to fight for the people that are going to come after you. And that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. She fought for the generations that are kids today. She fought for those kids that are coming after her. And I think that's an important fight. Yes. And I think my last little add to that is um, we should do an episode on ageism <laughs> and aging as an LGBTQ person. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but and I still want to talk to a queer Republican in the South. I still want to talk to one. So same, same. Um, but also be open to having your mind change um, when new information has been presented to you. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. All right. I'm going to let you go and we will see you all next week on another episode of Southern Queries. And thank everybody for listening. You can find more information about this episode and the show at our website, southernqueries.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Southern Queries. Queries is with two E's. Until next time, thanks for listening. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Hawley. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastian. This is Southern Queries. Oh.